Hi, I'm Joel Pilger, and you're listening to episode 83 of the Rev Thinking Podcast. It's about uh, elevating the people along with you and trusting them because you can't do everything on your own. If you do that, you'll never grow. Welcome to Rev Thinking, the podcast for creative entrepreneurs who know the best way to deal with the future is to create it. This is the conversation between creative leaders and consultants, discussing what it really takes to run a thriving creative business. Hey, Joel here at RevThink, the consultancy for next generation creative entrepreneurs, where we exist to help creative owners like you thrive in business and life and career. Well, welcome back. You know, it was a little over a month ago, I was in Vancouver, about to head to New York, and then a little thing called a pandemic set in. So unless you've been under a rock, you obviously have been affected by this. We all have. And RevThink and our clients are no different. Our clients were all disrupted by this event. And we had to scramble and put a lot of wheels in motion to help them as best we could, which we've been doing. But also we recognized You know, there's an industry out there that needed a lot of help. And we sprung into action. Tim Thompson and I were having a conversation one day and Tim just said, you know, Joel, I just need to talk. I need to talk to people. I think people need to talk to themselves and with us. And we started doing a daily briefing live stream. Maybe you've participated in that. We've been doing it on Zoom for almost a month now. And it's really been a place that I would say is a safe place to have some therapy and just talk about what you're up against, what you've been going through, how you're dealing with it, how you're adapting. And it's been really positive. We've gotten some tremendous feedback. We've had some great conversations. We've had some really special guests. I want to give a special shout out to our friend Marcel Ziul, who is the owner and uh, creative director at State Design. He's been our co-host on a number of episodes, but we've also had some great other guests show up and it's been a safe place for owners to get together and process everything that they're going through and how they're adapting. Some people have been disrupted to the extent that their business is almost shut down. They've obviously been shifting to a remote style of getting work done. Uh, A small percentage of firms have seen their business shift, but amount of business not really go up or down. And then some firms have actually seen their business increase because of how the dollars have had to move around in the industry to adapt to the crisis. So that said, it's been tremendous doing that daily briefing live stream. We've covered all sorts of topics. If I was going to just do a quick rundown of some of the topics we've, we've talked about cash and loans and gaining visibility about Things like selling in a crisis and the CARES Act, right? The PPP loans and the EIDL loans and all that sort of stuff. But we've also been talking about things like how do we take calculated risks? How do we move forward? How do we adapt as things won't return to normal? And that's been great. If you want to view those past episodes, they are actually on YouTube where RevThink now has a YouTube presence. So if you go to YouTube And just search RevThink, you'll find all those past episodes and we'll continue to post them there as we create them. Now, in addition to the YouTube uh, channel and those live stream episodes, we did do a special managing uncertainty event. It was also a live stream that Tim and I held to help people process from a matter of principle. How do we manage uncertainty? How do we get through times like this if you're an owner of a creative firm? Now, also another resource that we developed, I released a sales pipeline basics module. Now, this is a module that's part of my Jumpstart Accelerator, but I wanted to give it away to the industry for free because I think in a time like this, there's some really simple systems and routines that you can put in place to help you manage uncertainty. And a sales pipeline is one of those things. Now, if you want that module, I invite you to go to our seven ingredients slack channel and just request it you can dm me or uh, post in that slack channel now what is that well it's another resource many of you are members of a seven ingredients group that we had on facebook but right as the pandemic hit we decided to move it to slack 
So now there are somewhere around 350 to 400 owners that have all joined that Slack workspace and they are having conversations and it's been fantastic because we're talking about the seven ingredients. So everything from sales to marketing to production to finance, entrepreneurship, all that. But it's obviously a place where lots of owners are able to connect with each other and share ideas and resources, help each other, lean on each other. And that's been tremendous. So if you're interested in that, go to our website and search seven ingredients slack and we'll make sure that there's a post there or in the notes on this podcast if you're an owner of a creative firm we invite you to join that conversation okay that's about that for the announcements and the updates now i'm hoping we can start resuming to our regularly scheduled programming here on the rev thinking podcast so our goal is every other week on Wednesdays to release an episode with a conversation between myself or someone else here at RevThink and someone that you want to hear from. And then on the alternating weeks, Tim Thompson and I have a goal to release a Rev Thoughts episode, which is just a simple snackable conversation between Tim and myself processing some sort of a topic uh, that's relevant and timely. Now, about today's episode... Today, we're diving back into our profile of the Creative Entrepreneur Series, and today my guest is Joanne Chan. Now, she is the CEO at global design firm Turner Duckworth. Now, if I just take a quick peek at her bio, I'll tell you some highlights. The Turner Duckworth is the global design firm behind award-winning branding efforts, including the first Can Lion Design Grand Prix for Coca-Cola and a Grammy for its packaging for a Metallica album. They're also famous for the Amazon logo and identity, the Amazon smile that we all know if you're an Amazon Prime or if you've received an Amazon shipment anytime in the recent days and years. Joanne has recently moved in the past few years from COO to CEO of the design firm, but she spent more than 20 years at the firm. And I thought, you know, it'd be so interesting to sit down with Joanne. She's not exactly the typical creative entrepreneur that we have in this series, but I wanted to hear her perspective being in the industry for as many years as she's been. I wanted to hear what were the major milestones? What has she seen change down through the years? And what was the shift like moving from the account side of a design firm to the executive side? What are the misperceptions that people have about her role and what's it like as many of us wonder to shift from working in your business to working on your business and simply what does an agency design agency firm uh, CEO do like what is your role what does it look like and when the agency was acquired by Publicis and Leo Burnett what was that transition like so there's a lot in our conversation. I think you'll enjoy hearing from Joanne, and it's really great that she took some time out of her schedule to join me on the podcast. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Joanne Chan from Turner Duckworth. Well, I appreciate uh, you signing up for this interview. It was very cool when your folks reached out to me and said, hey, we think Joanne, Joanne would be really a great guest on your podcast. You know, this here on this podcast, I really try and explore this intersection of creativity and commerce and mm -hmm. speak more to the business side of, of our industry. So that's why I'm so glad you're here because I know you have well, a lot Well, thank to you for having me. <laughs> well, I, here's where I wanted to, to start is I, mm -hmm. you know, looking at your, your pedigree, if you will, and just looking at your mm -hmm. place in the industry, it occurred to me that did you first start working at Turner Duckworth back in 97? Yes, this is my 23rd year, but it's my second career. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, what was your first career? So my first career was in the fine arts. I worked at the Guggenheim Museum in New York in the curatorial department whilst earning my master's in art history at NYU. And then I went on to work at blue chip art galleries in New York selling Picasso's and Chagall's before I moved out to San Francisco where I then worked in the museum world for two more years while, while operating a nonprofit volunteer arts organization on the side that supported young emerging artists in their 20s and 30s. So then I, so basically I'd spent seven years making no money 
working in the museum and volunteer arts world. So I decided to switch careers. Uh, but I had no idea what I wanted to do because I had been so passionate about the art world that I really didn't have any other passion that I felt I could, you know, translate into a paying career. So what I did was kind of followed my methodical intuition and I got a list of alumni from my alma mater, Wellesley, and I interviewed 50 women from all walks of life with totally different careers from, I mean, I interviewed lawyers, broadcast news, producers, nurses, pharmacists, I mean, people from many different fields. And I asked each of them basically three questions. What do you do? How did you get there? And do you like it? And then from there, I was able to focus my career um, search to advertising and design because I realized that I could reposition all of the curatorial work I'd done, the organization of art exhibitions, the publication of art catalogs, and I parlayed my fine arts experience of managing very temperamental artists and the production of exhibitions on shoestring budget into account management for creative agencies. And I got two offers, one from Goodby Silverstein and one from Turner Duckworth. And then I was hired uh, by Turner Duckworth as employee number two in the U.S. <laughs> and I helped grow the business from a tiny packaging design agency to what we are now, really a world-class brand design agency. And this is my – March 1st will be my 23rd anniversary. Oh, my goodness. Now, just, just for comparison, how much that, – that growth – how do you generally express that growth? Is, like, the number of people at the agency or, like, what, how, would, how would you give people a sense of the scale of Turner Duckworth t- today? Sure. Well, when we started off, well, it was founded in 92 by David Turner and Bruce Duckworth simultaneously. And it was founded basically out of love because David Turner and Bruce, who worked together uh, at Lewis Moberly, a packaging design agency in London, uh, went their separate ways. David had uh, founded a small studio in London, but then he fell in love and followed a girl to the United States. And that's how he decided to share his clients with Bruce and they founded Turner Duckworth. And the first project they did was design our, I think, mark, our logo, which hasn't changed in 27 years. Um, and then David was basically a, a kind of a, a, a British packaging designer pounding the pavement in the Bay Area. And then he hired me to be the, his account person and kind of bring his business in line and figure out how to grow it. So we were really this kind of tiny, basically a packaging design freelancer called Turner Duckworth in the U.S. with a British accent with me. And we started just building our portfolio. And we did two very mindful things where we um, started repositioning our packaging design work as visual identity work. And the other thing is that we sort of resisted uh, going full bore into the dot-com branding arena, which I think saved us from from growing too quickly and then having to contract when the bubble burst. So, right. so but in terms of growth, it was like literally from two people to now 100 people and I'm global CEO. We were acquired by publicists in 2014. So the growth, the growth has been pretty tremendous from where we started. And that, that acquisition by pub, uh, publicists was in what year again? 2014. Okay, in 14. So that was uh, six years ago. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, it's, it's so interesting to hear that you were employee number two. And I actually really loved your, your transition story because when you talked about coming from the art world, I thought, gosh, most people go the other way. They, they're in the ad space or the design space and they go, you know, when they start to retire, they start thinking, oh, I'm going to go, you know, follow my whim and maybe go into art and more fine art and so forth. But what right. I love the question you asked all those ladies, the third one, right? Do you like it? Cause I'm guessing you mm-hmm. probably heard a lot of answers that were something like, sure. Yeah, I, I like it. And there were very few people that said, Oh, I love it. It was, was that something you found in, in our well, industry? Exactly. Exactly. When I was doing that sort of research, I, I heard a lot of, you know, interesting stories about what they did and and how they got to their roles 
and I talked to people in very different stages of their careers. You know, some had were five years in, ten years in, and some were thirty years in. Um, and and I think the key was that I, because I loved what I did so much in the art world, but I just couldn't afford to support myself anymore. Um, I wanted to find something that I would enjoy doing because I really, really did enjoy working with artists. And so that's after I talked to a few people in advertising and in marketing, I started realizing, you know, I can, I can still work with creative people, but in more of a commercialized setting. Um, And perhaps, perhaps I was um, more positioned and, and, and that attracted me because my mom is a painter and I, and I was surrounded by art and artists my whole life. And I studied art history and psychology in undergraduate. And then I went to graduate school. And I think I, I always had a sort of um, business mind, but a deep understanding of creative minds and what makes them tick and how to empathize with them. And then how to also create a culture that fosters creativity whilst also allowing it to be a thriving, profitable business. Now, in the nonprofit world, obviously, that's not necessarily the objective, but you have to get exhibitions out and you have to make them travel and you have to produce, you know, catalog raisonnés. And it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of kind of commercial work and production to get art out into the world. So, so whilst I was never great at making art myself, um, I think that because I was surrounded by creativity kind of all my life, I, I kind of understood the challenge around the business of selling creativity. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm curious, when you, when you look back and you tell your story to people, would would it be fair to say that you shifted from being in the world of fine art to the world of commercial art or does that term? Oh, not- for sure. Yeah. Does that tell? Oh, no, I, yeah, I, I definitely look at it that way. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, at, there was a little period during the transition where I felt like I was quote unquote selling out um, because I was so enmeshed in the, um, in the nonprofit art world, you know, having worked at the Guggenheim and the Ansel Adams Center for Photography. And I felt like, oh, what am I doing? I'm just selling, you know, commercial art. But at the same time, commercial art serves a great purpose. It drives economy. It drives branding. It sells products. It creates jobs in a lot of ways. And so I started to come to terms with that. And also I started as I built my career and moved from account management to executive management and running a business, I started focusing more on the people and the fact that I'm creating a culture that creates a safe space for creativity, but also that is a great place to work. And I started to pride myself in uh, and focus on creating a, a a creative environment that people love working at. And, and that is something I think that um, is, is great about Turner Duckworth. And it's something that I continue to work on and try to improve upon. Well, I love the, the picture you just painted there because one of the things I've been wondering is, do you get asked a lot, what does an agency CEO do? Like what, what is your job? And are there misconceptions about what that role might be? Yes, and it's interesting because we've grown a lot, and uh, and there are some people here who've been with us for 20 years. We have actually incredible staff tenure. I think the recent study I did showed that about six over 60% of our executive creative directors and creative directors were hired as interns or out of college, and more than half of them have been here for more than 10 years. Um, and that just shows kind of the tenacity and how people just love working here. And But what's interesting is newer people who come in and they, they meet me as CEO, they don't actually know that I came from the ground up and that I helped build the company necessarily. And, and that also I worked in account management. Um, and so, you know, I think my role has changed so much. As, as I was started out, David hired me as basically the account manager I convinced him, you know, on a lark to hire me based on my arts background and completely repackaged what I had done and sold him on the fact that I could do it because I didn't think it was rocket science. I learned from him and I also learned from our clients. And then I worked my way up to account director, built 
you know, a department, built a practice, built a thriving business. Uh, I became head of client services. And then we grew the business to a point where I was able to elevate one of my stellar team members into my own position. And then in 2012, I became chief operating officer. And at that point, I transitioned out of day-to-day management of the creative process and client work. And I had to think more about how to grow the business, how to execute our vision, and how to achieve the overarching goals of our agency. And then a couple of years later, I managed the acquisition of Turner Duckworth by Publicis and our integration uh, into the network with Leo Burnett. Um, And I would say that now in my role as global CEO, because I also now oversee both U.S. and U.K. operations, I feel like I work more on our business than in our business, and I'm required to think bigger picture and kind of come out from behind the curtain a bit. Yeah, well, I think it's really it's really curious to me to imagine somebody spending all those years on the account side where you're clearly working in the business. Right. And to make that shift and move to working on the business uh, as an executive and so forth, I, I, to me, that sounds like that would be quite a challenge because your, you know, your background is in yeah. the work itself. It's in right. advertising, branding, identity, and all that work. And now you're shifting to a world where you're thinking about, well, namely operations. So you're thinking about uh, right. HR and facilities and legal and taxes and finances, and you, you, you're reading a lot of spreadsheets and those kinds of things. Was that... Was that fun? Was it challenging? Did you ever wonder, oh gosh, maybe I need to go back? (laughs) That's an interesting question because I think I'm so business-minded as a person and I always have been the type of person to geek out on spreadsheet and kind of learn new things in in, legal and HR. I actually enjoyed that sort of thing. And because I grew a business from scratch, I helped grow a business from scratch, I had to figure things out as we went both on the client services and account management side and running a business. So the whole time that I was building a practice of account management and client services and branding, I was also figuring out how to manage people, what the HR policies would be in California and then New York when we opened in New York. And what are some of the legal issues I have to understand with trademark searches? I mean, I had to figure all of that stuff out. And, and I think, I guess I've always had some level of like entrepreneurial spirit and curiosity about everything that kind of drove me to just figure stuff out. And, um, and, you know, I would attend sometimes very boring conferences. I would go to seminars. I would learn from our clients. I would hire consultants and somehow we muddled through and, um, you know, I guess we became a, a really viable business because to the point that we were, approached by many media agencies, actually, you know, I'm not going to name them, but other ones like publicists before we we ended up deciding to sell to publicists. So clearly we were making a name for ourselves. You know, I think we became well known in the industry because of the number of awards we were winning and because of the big brands that we were working on. But yeah, I, I, I think the operations of agencies are not necessarily the sexy part, right? It's the create, it's the creative work and winning the awards and landing that big client. That's the kind of stuff that is really exciting. And I also found that really exciting, but I, at the same time, I have this other side of me, I guess it's a yin and yang thing where I also loved kind of getting into the weeds and figuring out operations. So when I became COO, I really had to focus on that. And to be honest, it was challenging. And one of the key things that I had to do was let go and trust that my team that I had built, uh, the account team and, and the head of client services that I promoted into my role, that they could handle it. And I, I worked at becoming the type of manager who was there for them when they needed, when they needed me. Um, but I also gave them a safe space to stretch and to sort things out. And, you know, if I had to, I would, I would step in and help them. But for the most part, a lot of, you know, moving kind of into a new area or, or jumping into a new level in one's business, it's about uh, elevating the people along with you 
and trusting them because you can't do everything on your own. If you do that, you'll never grow. For sure. Yeah. Well, you mentioned an interesting word a minute ago that I really loved, and that is curiosity. Because I definitely find that the journey of the creative entrepreneur, it's like this lifelong school. Because there's right. really not MBAs or knowledge classes, courses, what have you out there that are going to teach you all that you need to know to be a successful creative entrepreneur. And I think, too, That's the right. journey that you shifted, right? You sort of went from this, what I would call somewhat of a creative role where you're working in the business to that executive and more management role working on the business. Uh, yeah, it's it, some people might say, "Oh, that that that's a sellout," and but I would agree mm -hmm. with you. I don't think it. I don't think it is. But I'm. I know that's a tension that a lot of creative entrepreneurs go through when they're running their small shop and they're ten or twenty people. I certainly experienced this, where I was a creative, I was an artist, I was I was an animator, what have you. And then as my business started to grow and I moved and shifted to working on the business side, it was tough because I think a lot of the people on my team sort of felt like oh, he's now on the business side. And there was something right. dirty or unseemly about that. Right. Like, I, like I had become the man, right? Right, right. Well, I think people, especially within our culture, because we are still a small agency. We have 110 employees total across US and UK. I think people do appreciate that one of the things I do is I I work very hard at protecting our culture and protecting Turner Duckworth's identity and our independence as an agency, even though we're part of a very large media company, right? So I take pride in my role, but it's not easy. You know, I, it, it's really changed a lot in six years since we were acquired and, and I have to do a lot of reporting up and focus on financials. We have to meet our numbers and, there's a there's more politics involved, of course, than when we were an independent agency, but also a lot of doors have opened for us as well. So I think, you know, there's probably a lot of pros and cons in, from going being an independent agency to being part of a larger holding company. Yeah, and that's that's actually a really great uh, thread. I think it would be fun to explore is I think there's certainly most every small business owner, certainly my clients and people in this space that run studios and production companies, creative agencies, there is a, let's say a common narrative, which says, mm -hmm. oh, someday I'm going to sell. I'm going to get some right. you know, big check and, and sail off into the sunset, or we're going to become acquired and I'm going to be then independently wealthy and not really have to really run things anymore. And you can tell, obviously, I'm telling you somewhat of the myths and the fantasies mm -hmm. that, that right. authors have. What I'm curious to know is, at what point was acquisition, merger, whatever, when did that even become a point of discussion amongst you and the right. leadership team? Right. And at what point did the trade-offs, the pros and cons weigh in favor of, yeah, I think we should do this? Sure. So in the years leading up to the decision to, to sell, we were approached by most of the major media companies and some investors and some and some other private companies and to all of them david turner and bruce duckworth said no 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 and it, i think the reason that they decided finally to say yes to publicists was twofold actually the first was because it was leo burnett's Mark Tutsell and Tom Bernardan, the CCO and CEO, respectively, who approached us. And they were true fans of our design work. They really believed in our agency. We had had opportunity to partner with them on some of the groundbreaking work that we did on Coca-Cola that they end up bringing to life in advertising. And they basically offered to, to, to open up the Leo Burnett network to us, but also to leave us alone to do what we did best. And so because we found these very like-minded champions of creativity, we decided that it was the right time. And then the second reason was because we had, over the last several years before the acquisition, had been thinking about scaling up. And at the time, we were about 30 people in each studio, San Francisco and London, 
Okay. And at, at, at that time, we kind of felt like that was the perfect size. And we felt that strategically, instead of growing to be like a land or size, 100, 150 people, we actually wanted to grow more studios. So we felt that having a larger holding company or an advertising network like Leo Burnett behind us with offices in dozens of, dozens of countries could help us with the expansion. And it worked. Um, I mean, you know, no, we're not all over the world, but since the acquisition, we've doubled our revenue. We've doubled our headcount. We opened our New York studio in 2016. And I'm really happy to say that we also had a great year in 2019, which was the transition year of David and Bruce moving into their chairman roles. And so they promoted Sarah Moffat and I to co-CCO and CEO of both the U.S. and U.K. operations. So it's it's worked out. Yeah, and, and you know, for you personally, what what's been most gratifying about that is it is it this access to this larger network? Is it the the talent? Is it the the people? Is it having more influence or maybe more impact on your clients' businesses? What what? What gets you excited about being part of that larger holding company and that that network? I guess it's it's the doors that have opened, but to be honest, we don't walk through everyone because sometimes it's not the right fit for us. You know, we're we're not a one size fits all solution, and we are very much specialists. Um, we are really the only. Uh, we're, we're the only design agency in within Publicis North America, um, and the and in the UK. There are a couple of others within the group globally, um, but I think we bring a different sort of skill set and consultancy to the group, and we're seen as um, experts in in what we do. So we have probably more opportunity than we can take on, which is always a great position to be in. Sure. And I'm, I'm really grateful because for, for my personal growth, you asked about, you know, me personally, I, I love the fact and I appreciate that I now have other mentors. So before it was, I mean, for years, it was just David and I, right. I mean, I basically reported to him, but he kind of treated me as an equal and let me go about handling you know, the business management and, and account services and so forth. So now I have this whole, I, I, I report up to Publicis North America and also Publicis UK. So I have two reporting structures and I have mentors in, especially in North America and, and, and in London who I can talk to and other peers within the group that I, I can talk to and reach out to professionally, which has been a boon for me because it, it's me, it's meant that there are other people I can rely upon for advice and growth because I, I have been forced to grow personally and professionally in my new role as CEO. And as I was saying earlier, come out from behind the curtain a little bit. So, um, but there's definitely, there's pros and cons, right. Of being part of a larger company there, you know, there aren't that many disadvantages, but I would say, you know, because I know that your audience, focus on um, independent agencies that, that grow and entrepreneurs. One of the biggest challenges is when you go from being an independent company to being part of a, a very large holding company, eventually you need to fall in line with global policies, technology, right. tools, et cetera, right? And that can sometimes be depending on who the holding company is and how much they push and how slowly they allow you to integrate it can be a shock to the system, to the culture. And, and so sometimes that involves pushing back on group policies or finding compromises or slowing the role of integration. And sometimes it involves me explaining to our teams why we simply need to comply and fall in line. Um, but overall, I think we are very fortunate. I can't speak for other agencies that, that are acquired by WPP or Omnicom, but within Publicis, I think we are very fortunate because we are still in charge of our own destiny and we're still in charge of our own P&L and our positioning and our work product. And um, whilst we still report up to C-suite in Publicis North America and UK, it's, it's an extremely supportive and amicable relationship. So I, I feel very lucky in that regard because I know that not all acquisition stories are like that for creative agencies. Well, yeah, you know, it, they get fold, they get folded into one another, right? And they get wiped, 
white, white labeled. And yes. that can be really tough. Well, I've worked uh, with a few studios uh, and, and spoken with a few others that have been acquired more in the consultancy realm, like the Accentures and the Deloitte's of the world that are sure. scooping, yeah. up, scooping up creative shops, you know, to, um, to in a way, compete with the likes of you yeah. or those, those, yeah. uh, those ad agencies. For the most part, if those shops are smaller, they really, they just get absorbed. Like they, they just kind of vanish and that talent and the resources get merged into the, the big entity and they somewhat go away. So when you talk about Turner Duckworth still maintaining its independency and having its own P&L and being able to chart its own future, I could see where for me, and maybe this is just my my personality, but that would likewise be very, very important to me that there's a sense of we've built something here and it's really valuable and our clients find it valuable. Let's not just let it be absorbed into some giant, uh, I don't know, <laughs> entity yeah. and go right. away. But there's something valuable right. in retaining that independence. Right. And that that is a testament, A, to how much we have, you know, we have uh, worked to maintain our independence and um, control over our work product, but also the fact that Leo Burnett, under whom we sit basically within the network as part of publicist, has been um, really supportive of that because they, they, especially Andrew Swinand, who is the CEO of Leo Burnett, he's such a great champion of what we do, and he very much values our brand, Turner Duckworth, and and our work product, and he he understands how. Um, we're sort of we're we're really different from the rest of the entities within the group, and he he's supportive of of helping us maintain that difference, which is great, so that we don't feel like we're being swallowed up. Yeah, but I, but I know that does happen with other agencies, and so I I do I do appreciate that this is kind of a unique situation. Well, I like that you just used the word uh, champion because that, that's something I aspire to do with with all of my clients is be that mentor and, and champion them. Like you're already on a good path. How can I come alongside you and help mm-hmm. you continue on this path, but thrive or go in new directions that, that excite you. And that sounds like that's part of what you're getting in that mentoring and that coming alongside-ness from Leo Burnett and the other executives that you report up to. Right. And and I hope that continues that the, pressures of, of industry changes and, um, you know, some of the transformations we're seeing, you know, doesn't change that level of support. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned management consultant agencies. So, you know, the Deloitte and Anderson and McKinsey's of the world are starting to buy up small shops and compete in the creative space. They're not just management consultant companies anymore. They're, 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 starting to become creative agencies, right? So our competitive landscape and the traditional advertising world's competitive landscape is changing significantly. And um, that and and data, of course, has become such a big part of that play. Um, It's much more relevant for the bigger agencies and, you know, for, for the media agencies, I think. It's less relevant for specialist agencies like ours, but we're part of the whole now. So, you know, there there could, I don't know what the future holds. I, I don't have a crystal ball, but um, I think what, what we're going to do is just sort of double down on what we do well, which is create enduring brand assets. And we're going to keep doing that. And we have to be able to create assets that will flex for whatever our clients' needs are, because it's always changing. You know, we designed the, 20, we designed the Amazon logo 20 years ago and it hasn't changed, but boy, Amazon has changed a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you think? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing because I remember when when Jeff Bezos briefed us, he uh, was was only selling books at the time. He had just bought a, a, a CD company, and he was remember CDs that came and went, didn't it? So he was just about to sell CDs, but he said, "Okay, the brief is one day I'm going to sell everything under the sun," and we just thought. Guys, bonkers. How's that possible? Because you got to remember, I mean, if you're old, as old as I am, you would remember that 20 years ago, that seemed like a pipe outrageous. dream, outrageous. right? It seemed outrageous. Yeah. And we even asked him in the briefing meeting, we said, well, what's the most outlandish thing you think you could sell online? And this, I remember at the time, it was only books. 
he said, patio furniture. And we thought, oh, that'll never happen. (laughs) (laughs) And look where they are now. I know. It's amazing. So, so, but, but the, the fact is we kind of stripped down the brief to the most important things, which were somehow communicating the customer service is number one, hence the smile. And the fact that he wanted to be able to create a brand that could sell anything and everything in the future. And the gift in the word Amazon was the linkage of A to Z because that was just a designer's dream there. And, and so, but, but that's kind of, that approach to design and branding hasn't changed uh, at Turner Duckworth. It's how we always operate and we still operate. And, and, you know, to this point, we have designed the brand assets for four out of 10 of the brands on Forbes most valuable brands list. And mm. for a tiny company that, you know, that's, I think we're pretty proud of that. Yeah, no doubt. That's an incredible legacy. Well, and I'm guessing as you look into the future, I hear this continued optimism, even though you don't have a crystal ball. Right. I mean, I think we always say the best way to deal with the future is to create it. And right. I guess that sort of leads to my question of what, what gets you excited about the future? What do you think is possible or out there waiting for you and Turner Duckworth as you say, hey, here's the future we're mm-hmm. excited to get out there and create? You know, I get, you know what really makes me excited is that we don't know the future. I, I, actually, my, my daughter, is uh, she's a freshman in high school. And when we were touring high schools, the, the, the dean of the high school that we ended up choosing said something really thought-provoking, which was the jobs that your kids are going to be applying for when they graduate from university eight years from now, haven't been created yet. And most likely they are in industries or sub-industries that haven't even been created yet. So how do we educate those students? And that was so interesting. And the answer was, we still educate them in the foundational subjects, but we also work on various things like human development and teaching children these days how to how to work together and how to be less isolated when they can do everything from their bedroom on their phone how do you get how do you teach them interpersonal skills right. so that's on some level a, a bit of an analogy to why we feel it's important for us at Turner Duckworth to kind of double down on what we do well because it's we have 27 years of proof that what we do i mean the Amazon logo at being 20 years old is a perfect example where if we keep to our principles and doing what we do well and continue being, you know, instead of trying to be a jack of all trade master of none, try to be in a category of one and continue to do what we do very well and train our people, retain our people, make sure we understand that our agency is only good as the people who, who stay. And then we'll see, we'll see what the future holds. I'm really excited about not knowing what the future holds. I'm sure it has uh, everything to do with data and digital, but I don't know what that really means yet for us. All I know is that brands are still going to be important. And in, especially in this day and age where you need to be scroll stopping in order to be noticed, it's ever more important that brand assets have a level of what we call maximal simplicity so that they really cut through all the noise and stop the thumb from scrolling. So we're just going to keep doing that. And if, if we need to pivot, we will, because I think we're small and nimble enough. And I, I think we have enough good, great minds here that we'll be able to, to grow and change as we need to. Well, I think you and I can both look back and say, you know, I think we made it through the nineties and all of that, transition to digital and then the 2000s and then the mm-hmm. dot-com and the bubbles and the real estate and the 08 recession, all these things. So I think in a way it, it is really encouraging. Like, yeah, there's going to be enormous change and enormous upheaval in the future and we'll deal with it. Like we'll, we're right. going right. to create in spite of all that disruption, we're still going to create based on these timeless principles and these foundations and talent and creativity and energy and optimism. So I, I'm excited to see where you continue to go from here. Thank you. And, and I think one of the, the things that we, we try to re- remind ourselves is that even if we have the opportunity to grow quickly, 
we we check ourselves and we we grow responsibly and modestly. I mean, we, we have we have really good growth in terms of revenue and size, but but we definitely have said no a lot over the years. And there's one particular time period was during the kind of dot com era where after we designed the Amazon logo off the back of that, we got so many offers to do every startup logo. And I'm so glad that we stuck to our principles, which were, we were very steadfast about to focus our work on consumer brands, because most of the dot-coms coming to us were B2B, and we just couldn't get our hearts and minds around their enterprise propositions. We just, Mm -hmm. frankly, didn't really understand them, and we didn't really get excited about them. So a lot of design agencies at the time scaled up to meet the demands of Silicon Valley, and then when the bubble burst, most of those agencies had massive layoffs and some closed their Bay Area offices. And that didn't happen to us. We've never had layoffs because of financial situations ever. And yeah. I, that's because we've, we've managed, you know, responsible growth. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how going through changes that severe can sometimes just kill the culture of a company and it can't, it can't recover. And it's... Right. It's, I'm sure, gratifying to you to see that you made some really tough choices at the time because we all know saying no is so hard, but it's not, it's not harder than dealing with your business collapsing because right. of big exactly. and your culture shock can't deal with it and your company goes away. So kudos to you guys for managing that and thriving over such a long period of time. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, the key is really not getting wooed by money, because at that time, people were throwing money <laughs> out their windows and saying, come on, just do it, just do it, you know, we'll give you X amount of money. And we're like, we're not just going to do it for the money. We have to make sure that it's the right fit for what we do, that we can bring value add to the table and that we can do the job well. And frankly, we weren't convinced at the time that we could do all those jobs well and grow quickly and still um, have a great creative product. And I'm, I'm so glad that we, we stuck to our guns. And, and that, that's still, we have a, an internal kind of mission statement about, about doing uh, the best work all the time for every client on every project with no skeletons in the closet. So we have no cash cow clients. Every project we do, we feel we, can, we hold up a standard of creative excellence we can enter into award competitions um, and we're really proud of, and we do it while respecting each other with a very generous and positive spirit. That's what we keep trying to do. Well, that's a, that, I love that statement, especially the no skeletons in the closet. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> that's a hard one to maintain over the years because obviously there's just always politics and, and drama that can happen behind the scenes, but it sounds like you're keeping those at bay. Yeah, that, that was a hard thing to say no to because there was a one major client that came to us and said, you, know, you guys can design kind of a packaging system and then we want you to create all of the packaging SKUs across the private label line, which was like tens oh. of thousands of SKUs. Whoa. And we knew that that would crush our culture and we'd, we would, of course, have to expand very quickly in order to meet that need. But we just asked ourselves, we kind of we looked around at all our designers and thought, are they really going to be excited about doing the pack extension, you know, for 12 flavors of the same thing? I, no, they're not going to be excited. About that. <laughs> yeah, but that was hard because that would have been a huge piece of business. And, and over, over the last, you know, 27 years, we've definitely turned that type of work away because that's just not, it's just not what we want to do. Yes, sometimes, <clears throat> excuse me. Sometimes it's better to be the smaller agency that remains focused on what you love and where you can create the big, biggest impact than the big agency that is diffused and a mixture of great, right. but also, I don't know, less interesting, less passionate, less meaningful work. Right, right. I mean, we have to keep our people motivated and the creatives. You know, they don't, they, they're not in it just for the money. They're definitely in it because they want to stuff their portfolios full of really great projects and beautiful things. And so we need to make sure that we, we bring in the right type of clients who have an appetite for what we do. And not all of them 
have kind of the creative bravery to do the kind of work that we do. And they, some of them don't need it, of course. Um, but those that do, you know, that's where we bring the most value to the table. So, Joanne, I'm curious, how are, are you out and about if people want to keep tabs on you? Uh, do you speak occasionally? Are you on other podcasts or do you have a, a blog or anything else that for people that want to just follow you? I do not. I do not have a blog. I am. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm trying to be, as, as I said earlier, I'm trying to come out from behind the curtain after years of running the business and just kind of running this engine. I'm coming, I'm coming out more. And so I've, I've done a couple of speaking engagements. I've done another podcast. I'm trying to be more vocal on LinkedIn. Um, we hired a PR agency. So I've been interviewed in the you know, trade publications. We're doing more to kind of get our Turner Duck Riz voice out there. So um, last year, we actually had a tremendous amount. Of, we, I think we had more press in 2019, more press coverage than we did in the past, I don't know, seven years in one year because we started really pushing our message out and, and finally hired an outside PR agency to help us do that because we had never done that before. That's very typical also of small, small companies, you know, yeah. never really investing in marketing. <laughs> <laughs> very common so bottom line yeah. more to come and we look forward to seeing you out there and hearing more about what turner duckworth is doing in the industry it's going to be exciting to see thanks so much i really appreciate the opportunity to chat it's, it's been very interesting yeah well, i appreciate it as well it's always fantastic to get someone who's had a career in the industry and of course your perspective and where you come from and and what you've what you've done uh working in the business and the creative side and then working on the business, I think is just a really valuable perspective. And I appreciate you being so willing and candidly sharing it. You're welcome. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Rev Thinking Podcast. For more information on upcoming accelerators, events, or to learn how RevThink advises creative entrepreneurs like you, connect with us at RevThink.com.